Welcome to Sports History 101, a production of the Saints Sports Network. Hi everyone, and welcome into this episode of Sports History 101. I am Ray Delgado, and I will be your host for this episode as I have for every other one. In this go-around of the podcast, we will be diving into the Continental Basketball Association, which was alive and well for over 60 years. Well, I don't know about well, but it was alive for over 60 years. It started off as the Eastern Pennsylvania Basketball League in 1946. So actually the, the same year that the NBA was founded, this Eastern Pennsylvania Basketball League was founded. Started off with six teams, as you can imagine, all in Pennsylvania. The Wilkes-Barre Barons, the Lancaster Red Roses, Reading Keys, Hazleton Mountaineers, Allentown Rockets, and the Binghamton Triplets, who moved midseason and were renamed the Pottsville Pros. They only played one season under that Eastern Pennsylvania Basketball League before they changed their name to the Eastern Professional Basketball League. Uh, I guess wanting to broaden their horizons beyond just Pennsylvania. After they, really just in their second season of existence, they lost three teams, Allentown, Pottsville, and Wilkes-Barre, but added five teams. So really, they netted two new teams. And of the five that were added, the Sunbury Mercuries, Philadelphia Lumberjacks, Harrisburg Senators, Pottsville Packers, yes, another team in Pottsville, and Williamsport Billies. That's always fun to see what the, uh, what the old sports franchises were called. Very, very interesting names. In 1970-71 season, they again changed their name to the Eastern Basketball Association. So, just removing the professional from it and changing it to an association because apparently that carried a little bit more weight. And they would have that name until 1978. So they had that one for about seven, for about eight years. In the final season of the EBA, so that would be 1978, they had 10 teams, which I will not list off to you again in full, but they had expanded into New York. So they had teams like the Jersey Shore Bullets, the Long Island Ducks, and the Brooklyn Dodgers, along with a lot of their the teams that they had in Pennsylvania, obviously, along with the Washington, D.C. Metros, and the super awesome Anchorage Northern Knights. So for the 1977-78 season, the league added the Anchorage Northern Knights to play in the Eastern Basketball Association. That's right, Anchorage, Alaska. Adding an Alaskan franchise was a big deal for the league, obviously, as you could probably imagine. They got quite a bit of national attention because of that, and even so far as a Sports Illustrated cover story. It was also a big deal for Alaska because it was the first professional sports team that the state had ever had, and they turned out to be pretty dang successful. They averaged almost 2,400 fans, which was over twice as many as the second highest team that had 950 and ended up winning the Western division and eventually lost in lost to the Lancaster red roses in five games in the EVA semifinals. And that, that was just their first year. So that season, again, the seven, 77, 78 season would be the last 
before the EBA would play and they would once again change their name to the one that we know, the one that we're after today, the Continental Basketball Association, which it would remain for the extent of its existence. Just as a note, some things to uh, go back over for the 32 years of the Eastern Pennsylvania Basketball League, Eastern Professional Basketball League, and Eastern Basketball Association. They had 61 different teams compete in the league in that time. A lot of those were replacing teams in the same city, just with a different name, but it's still a different franchise. But 61 teams in 32 years. And of those 61, only 12 of them actually won a championship. Both the Wilkes-Barre Barons and Allentown Jets each won eight titles uh, to lead the league. And the Wilkes-Barre Barons actually won the very first EPVL championship and the last EBA. So they bookended the, the league before it became the Continental Basketball Association. The first year of the Continental Basketball Association came about in 1978 as James Drucker took the reins as commissioner and expanded the league in many regards. The league continued to have a tremendous amount of turnover, like we said, those 61 different teams, um, but they slowly moved toward a more of a national league, more of, you know, actually spread out across the country. Along with the Anchorage Northern Knights, they added another novel franchise in the Hawaii Volcanoes that only ended up playing for one season, 1979-80 season, and then brought on teams, more teams in New York and Canada, again with mixed results of them dropping in, dropping out, and moving around and, and whatnot. Where the CBA really made things interesting and separated themselves from the NBA was the rules which we will outline after a quick break. All right, so now we're going to dive into some of the rules. Now bear with me here because these are going to jump around a little bit, but they are interesting and they are odd at times. So from 1963 all the way through the end of the league, the they instituted the three-point line so the epbl adopted the three-point line actually from the american basketball league uh, which was another professional league um, at the time and the three-point line that they adopted was 25 feet away from the basket and was later moved to the nba distance of 23.9 feet or 22 feet on the sides when the NBA decided to adopt the three-point line in 1979. So the EPBL slash EBA slash CBA had the three-point line about 16 years before the NBA did. Another rule they had in the 60s regarded late players to games. So at that time, the games were only on the weekends. So players still had full-time jobs and they still had to commute, you know, to the games and things like that. So 
from what I could gather, the teams didn't travel on a bus together or anything like that. You were responsible for getting to the game yourself, whether it was home or away. So if you were late to the game, the first time it was an automatic $25 fine, which, I mean, at the, in the 60s, that's pretty substantial. And then a second time, if you were late a second time, you were fined $50 and had a two-game suspension. So pretty big deal for being late. They later did away with that, obviously, because I think it started moving more to a team model and probably playing games during the week and actually becoming a full-time job. So that wasn't an issue anymore. One thing that was really interesting was had to do with salary cuts. So the league had it written into the rules, into the league charter, whatever you want to call it, uh, that players reserve the right to not accept more than a 25% cut in salary on a per game basis. So more or less that prevented players from losing out because of poor attendance. So because, you know, no one was coming to see games and things like that, the league didn't think that the players should take the brunt of that, that they should be penalized heavily for that. Um, And that kept the, the owners honest. You know, it's, you know, keeping it coming out of their pocket rather than they just keep diminishing the players' salaries so that they don't actually lose any money. It's all the players' fault in their mind kind of thing. And then the players themselves had the right to uh, report an owner trying to make them take more than a 25% cut. Uh, so, I mean, I would be interested to know if any players actually took that route, if an owner tried it. But still, having those rules in place basically to protect the players is, I mean, pretty novel idea back then. Now we get into some interesting rules that they had. So for 1979, all the way through the end of the league, they had interesting rules regarding fouling out. So in basketball, for those of you who don't know, a foul is basically an incursion of the rules. So you, you know, you hit a player's swat a player on the hand while he's trying to shoot the ball, uh, stops it from doing that, or he goes up to for a layup under the basket and you run into him or hit him in some way. Those are just kind of examples of a foul. So originally the league allowed five fouls per player before they were disqualified from the game. So after you got five fouls, you had to sit out, couldn't play anymore in the game. That moved to six fouls like the NBA in the early seventies. So they, they moved on par with the NBA. And then in 1979, they decided to go a completely different route. So they changed the rule so that players could not foul out of a game. So it doesn't matter how many fouls you had, you could not foul out of a game. The catch was the player could still play when they got six fouls, but for every personal foul after that, a technical foul was assessed. So there's basically levels. A personal foul is just a common foul. And then a technical foul is one above that. So usually that's for like someone purposefully tried to hit somebody or purposefully did something that was menacing or harmful to another player. That's when you get a technical foul. So that would mean that the opposing player who was fouled, well, I guess the technical foul means that anyone could take it. Anyone on the opposing team gets to shoot one free throw and then that team 
gets possession of the ball for the next um, possession. So pretty big deal. You know, technical fouls are not something to be taken lightly, especially late in a game when you could assume that players have six fouls and things. So you could play that player. However, it was at a potential cost because if they get any kind of foul of anything after they have six, then it's a technical foul and you lose the ball, which is a big deal. Another of their weird things was started in 1981 and it was called the seven point system. So starting in 1981, standings in the league were not determined by wins and losses, but by points. For each contest, there were potentially, not potentially, there were seven standing standings points that could be won. So if a team won, they got three for a win, and then one point was assessed for the team that won each individual quarter because the game was split into four quarters. So the losing team could legitimately walk away with three points because all that, all the team, you know, they could, they could have won the first three quarters in terms of, you know, points in that quarter. The other team won the last quarter with enough to win the actual game. So the winning team would have gotten three for winning the game and four for winning the last quarter, but the losing team still got three points. So that basically that system, that seven point system more or less made it four games within one because you're playing four mini games in each quarter, trying to win each quarter because that gets you standings points. That created an interesting idea because it gave teams more incentive to leave their starters in, in, you know, in games where it was a no, no question win, but they still wanted to make sure that they could get all seven points. And it also gave incentive for losing teams to still come away with something. You know, if they're getting their they're getting their butts beat and through halftime, and they know that there's probably a good chance they're not going to win the game, they could at the very least win the last two quarters and still get something. Rather than just, you know, letting the other team run away with it. They're like, you know, there's no point in us playing this final half. You could actually get something out of that that those last two quarters. And they employed that seven-point system all the way through when the league folded. So, spoiler, I've already said it like four or five times, but the league is still not around today. One of the more creative rules that they came up with that lasted only one season for the the 81-82 season, they created a six-foot by five-foot box in front of the basket where any contact between offensive and defensive players would be an automatic foul. So what that was supposed to do was it was supposed to increase players' likelihood to drive to the basket and then increase scoring because if you drive into that six-foot-by-five-foot zone, that means basically no one can touch you. But that rule confused everybody and actually didn't even last the whole season. It didn't even last the whole 81-82 season. So that was done away with pretty quickly because that is pretty ridiculous. From 1982 to 1988, just like all the other basketball leagues, the CBA had overtime. 
So from 82 to 84, if a team went into overtime, they were tied at the end of the fourth quarter, then the first team to score three points was declared the winner. So you could go back and forth, back and forth. There wasn't any time on it. It was just the first first team to score three points. In 85 to 87, so that first one was for two years. This one was also for two years. The first team to lead by three points was declared the winner in overtime. So you could go back and forth, back and forth all day, basket here, basket there, basket here, until someone led by three points, the game was not over. So that could potentially have lasted quite a while. And then in the starting in the 87 season, they changed to the standard five-minute overtime uh, period, just like the NBA still currently has. And they worked with that all the way through the end. But still, you know, toying with different rules and stuff like that to try and change the game. I mean, that's what it's about, right? It's changing the game, especially when you're the underdog like they were. They were the underdog to the, the NBA. Changing the game was another thing, but during the 80s, Commissioner Jim Drucker, he asked fans for their ideas on rules that could potentially help the CBA. I don't believe that was a very good idea of asking the fans, what rules do you think we should enforce? What new rules do we think? So here's a few that I thought were quite, some of them are funny and some of them are, eh, it's not a bad idea. First one's a free throw shooter has the option of shooting for one point from the foul line, so just like a normal free throw, or trying for two points with a shot from three-point range. So he would be at the top of the arc, obviously. And, well, actually, it doesn't say that specifically, so he could go from the corner where, you know, if it's a corner three guy, then that that's his, his bread and butter. And he would get two points from that free throw, quote-unquote free throw, rather than the the one point from the foul line. Another was the player inbounding the ball should be able to take a shot instead of inbounding, as long as it's not taken from the baseline. So if a player, you know, a team is inbounding the ball from the sideline, as long as it's not the baseline, so the line that the basket is on, for those of you who don't know, as long as it's on one of the sidelines, then he should be able to take a shot from there thought that was kind of interesting but then you just have like you just have some really bad shots or it wouldn't be fair because they just have a team always had one of those long sharp shooters i would imagine and would try and do that and things which might make these a little little interesting one that i felt had legitimacy and is basically tracked in today's game but doesn't show up in a box score or anything is dunks said dunks should be included in game statistics. I agree. I think I don't think it's a skill so much to be able to dunk because arguably every guy in the NBA can dunk a basketball. But dunks during games, I think it'd be an interesting stat to keep, you know, to see who had the most dunks during the year. Uh, because, I mean, in theory, that shows how much your team is able to clear out under the basket or like your fast break abilities and things like that. I think it'd be interesting to see. Another one, which, I mean, it makes sense from a fan's perspective. I don't know about a player's perspective. 
was players should wear six Velcro strips on their uniforms. And each time they commit a foul, one of those Velcro strips is removed. And essentially what this does is creates an easy way for fans to see foul numbers for players. I assume it was probably a lot harder back then in the 80s when they didn't have you know, the video boards and things that we do now that can track everything down to the, you know, how many feet they've run during the game. Um, I feel like that would be, you know, I guess that it makes sense for fans. It doesn't make any sense for players and referees because it's not really that relevant. And plus someone's Velcro might get ripped off during the game and, and whatever. I'm sure players would try and cheat with that. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting one. Last couple, uh, teams should only start four players. So you play basically four and four basketball, spreads it out a little bit more. Yeah, that one's basically, you know, we all played that as kids. Play some street ball, you can only get eight player, eight people together. And the last one was, I thought was absolutely hilarious. It says, put plexiglass sideboards along the floor on all sides so the ball would never go out of bounds. So you basically be playing street hockey with a basketball. Like, I remember the, there was some, some video game, I can't remember what the name was now, but where you could, you know, the ball was allowed to, you know, bounce, you could bounce it off the wall and whatever and things like that. It's exactly what you would do. Do you imagine a plexiglass, like the, like just the side, the boards in hockey, but around a basketball court. And then, you know, obviously then there'd be guys flying into the boards and stuff. And that would add all all new elements to the game, especially if, uh, you know, they started flying into the boards. They would then need pads and things. But the things people come up with is <laughs> it's just awesome. So, you know, all these rules were, well, not all of them. Some of them were instituted into the CBA's games, and they were interesting at times. But at its core, it was still basketball, and the league's goals were at its base to survive, you know, stay interesting and and stay ahead of the curve. So 1978-79, as I've said a couple of times, was the first season of the CBA. And while they were enjoying their mild successes, um, an upstart rival also began play for that same season, the Western Basketball Association. So Western Western Basketball Association, or the WBA, had teams in Las Vegas, Reno, Fresno, Great Falls. I probably should start saying the, the states for these. Great Falls, Montana, Richland, Washington, Tucson, Arizona, and Salt Lake City, Utah. The WBA, one of their goals right out the gate was to lure the Anchorage Northern Knights away from the CBA. I assume probably because the geography made a little bit more sense, but they declined. So the league pivoted from there and proposed a merger with the Continental Basketball Association. Both the Continental Basketball Association and the Western Basketball Association saw the advantages of merging basically creating a 20-team league that would span the nation, just like the Continental Basketball Association suggested, but did not successfully uh, carry out. So on June 29th, 1979, 
the United Basketball Association was formed and press releases were sent out and, you know, they were all really high, speaking really high language, you know, of the, speaking of the potential of the new super minor league to the NBA. Um, and really their goal was to set up a minor league, like a feeder system with the NBA so they could provide the league with talent. So you had the guys that didn't get drafted by the NBA or maybe guys that did get drafted by the NBA that couldn't, didn't get meaningful minutes yet could go and play with one of the United Basketball Association teams. And then when the NBA wanted them back, they just grab them back. Everything was set into motion. The leagues were ready to merge, but by September, everything fell to pieces. In the background, the WBA was financially unsound, and one by one, their teams either folded or went bankrupt in the first season of the league until there wasn't a Western Basketball Association anymore. Thus, the United Basketball Association never came to be, and the CBA trucked right along. However, the relationship with the NBA, because remember they wanted with the UBA, they wanted to make that minor minor league feeder system. The relationship with the, with the NBA still remained alive for the CBA, and we will talk about that when we come back. Okay, so the relationship between the Continental Basketball Association and the National Basketball Association. So, I didn't actually explain it, but the NBA, I hope you know what the NBA is by now, because they are arguably the most global league in the world, Uh, but they are the premier basketball league, professional basketball league in the United States, and I think it's pretty comfortable to say the world. So... Going all the way back to the 40s and the 50s, the CBA and the NBA actually played exhibition games. In 1967, when the American Basketball Association formed, the ABA, as some of you might uh, recall, it started to siphon off both NBA and at that time EPVL players. So I can't, I don't remember if that was the Eastern Professional or Eastern Pennsylvania. I think it's Eastern Professional Basketball League. So the EPVL really suffered from the ABA. Sorry with all the acronyms, but it's it's the best we can do. So the EPVL uh, got all the way down to just four teams in 1975 because their teams just kept being basically pilfered by the other leagues. And down to just four teams before the NBA and the ABA graciously for the EPVL merged, which kept that league alive. Like honestly, if the NBA ABA merger hadn't happened, then the EPVL slash the CBA would not have, have kept going. Later on, after the league was renamed the Continental Basketball Association, the NBA signed four of their players away in 1979. And you think, oh, that's cool. They uh, were able to kind of create that system of, you know, providing players for the NBA. 
Well, the CBA sued the NPA and was awarded $115,000 in exchange for the right to sign any player at the time, at any time, by the NBA. So the NBA basically bought the right to be able to sign whoever they wanted from the CBA. The NBA also, at the same time, paid $80,000 to the CBA to help develop referees by having them call the CBA games, because obviously the Continental Basketball Association games were lower level than the NBA games, so it's a good training ground for them. Then, a year later, in 1980, the CBA became the official development league of the NBA. So with that, the relationship became really friendly and opened the door for all kinds of players to play on NBA rosters. It wasn't really fleshed out exactly what that official development league meant, but it seemed as though the CBA guys were happy with it. Because between 1978 and 1999, so that's 21-year span, 514 CBA players got the call to play in the NBA. That's pretty substantial. 514 players, that's, that's yeah, that's a lot. I don't really know what to say about that. Uh, including guys like Tim Legler, who played in the NBA for 11 years. Mario Eli, I believe is how you say his last name, E-L-I-E, who's a three-time NBA champion and played in the NBA for 12 years. And then also John Starks, who was an all-star, all-defensive player for the NBA and six-man-of-the-year award winner. So no slouches by any stretch. And there were obviously 511 more that had, you know, really, really small contributions or, you know, made a big difference on their team. The CBA also sent a number of coaches to the NBA. So coaches that started their careers in the CBA got chances at the higher level. Most notably, the legendary Phil Jackson was the coach of the Altoona Patroons before being hired on as the assistant with the NBA Chicago Bulls and then becoming the head coach of Chicago Bulls and then winning a ridiculous number of NBA championships, six with the Bulls and then I think five more with the Lakers after that greatest NBA coach there ever was. He was a coach in the CBA to start. At the height of its reach, the league had 16 franchises across the country from 1989 to 1995. So about six years, they actually legitimately were continental. However, the league leadership was a revolving door at the top spots as there were 10 different commissioners between 1986 and 1999. So that's only 13 years, and there were 10 different commissioners. I mean, that's the guy that's supposed to head up the league, give you a legitimate direction, and he basically changed every year. That instability had to have a negative effect on the league and their operations. And after the 1995 season, the league shrank to just nine teams by 1998, so just three years later. And the relationship that they had wanted with the NBA to be their minor league rather than just a developmental league for that would give them the NBA second-tier players was 
disappearing with their teams. Facing financial difficult... Oh, wow, that was not right. Facing difficult financial issues and trying to build the league back to where it was just, you know, less than a decade before, the CBA commissioner, Gary Hunter, one of the something like 16 that the league had in their existence, uh, Gary Hunter approached Isaiah Thomas about potentially buying an expansion franchise in Detroit, as Isaiah Thomas was an all-star and a two-time NBA champion, among all kinds of other things, with the Detroit Pistons. I mean, if you're in Detroit, you absolutely know who Isaiah Thomas is. 15 minutes into Hunter and Thomas's conversation, Isaiah Thomas asked, well, what if I just bought the whole league? <laughs> Thomas had tried to fail, tried and failed to buy a majority control of the Toronto Raptors, which is an NBA team in 1997. And after that failure had looked at baseball and the arena football league before he was approached by Hunter and decided to purchase not just the team in the CBA, but the entire CBA. The point of him buying the league was truly to make the CBA the minor league for the NBA. The, the point that you know the league basically always existed for, that they really wanted to try and do, was to become the minor league that they could just never, ever do. One of the main ways that Thomas wanted to accomplish that was to convert the league from, you know, franchises basically, from each individually owned by different people, to a single entity organization, meaning that the league owned everything, including the teams and, you know, all of those operations and controlled everything from start to finish from the front office. I might end up doing an episode on a single entity organizations because they actually use that system in Major League Soccer right now. Um, and so it's not an outlandish thing, but, you know, I, I assume it probably wasn't very welcomed by the owners of the franchises who were to be brought back to manage the teams. But in essence, you know, everything would be owned by Isaiah Thomas. So the franchises, the franchise owners basically lost their teams and were like, oh, you can come back and manage it if you want. But it's not yours anymore. Now it's mine. <laughs> it also remained to be seen, just in general, as to whether the NBA even wanted a minor league. I mean, that's what the CBA had said all along. That's why Thomas bought the league, was to make it the NBA's you know, second league, basically. And no one actually could figure out if the NBA even wanted that to happen. Well, that question was not asked for very long. As just 18 months after Isaiah Thomas purchased the league, the CBA filed for bankruptcy in February of 2001. The league suspended operations on February 8th, and on the 21st, the league filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy with some outstanding debts. Notably, two of the franchises, the Fort Wayne Fury, so Fort Wayne, Indiana, and La Crosse, Wisconsin, Bobcats, were owed $380,000 and $300,000 on top of the $1 million plus 
owed to operators, fans, sponsors, coaches, players, everybody. Isaiah Thomas owed everybody money. Isaiah Thomas and the CBA, not that it really mattered anymore, got their answer from the NBA on having a minor league. You know, the CBA was already bankrupt and had no teams. Uh, But they got their answer on whether the NBA wanted a minor league or not as the NBA created the National Basketball Development League in 2001. You might be familiar with this league. It was and still is controlled by the NBA and offers a pipeline of players that need to develop before they make contributions on actual NBA rosters. Before, it was just called the D-League you know, developmental league for a number of years from 2001 all the way until 2007 when Gatorade became the title sponsor. And now we all know and love the NBA G League. However, this does not close the book on the Continental Basketball Association. Well, not quite, pretty close. But the league still wasn't dead. As the International Basketball Association along with the remaining CBA teams that were still in existence, even though the league was done, they purchased those two things together, purchased the assets of the defunct league and started again. In true CBA fashion, well, EPBL, EPA, and, or no, E, yeah, E, yeah, EBA, whatever, and CBA fashion, the teams went in and out of the league all the time, And overall, they were unable to get a foothold really in any markets and definitely did not stay solvent. So on February 2nd of 2009, the CBA had finally run its course and folded once again, this time mid-season. The Albany Patroons and the Lawton Fort Sill Calvary Regular season series, they were two of, I believe they were two of the best teams, if not the two best teams. They were slated to play a regular season series, two-game series that was turned into the championship series. And then once those two games were played, it was no more. It was over. The Continental Basketball Association, under different name, like we said, began playing in 1946 and lasted 63 years, making it through a number of challenges from other leagues and economics, which is always the one that brings down leagues, to hang around for over half a century. Their game, I mean, they they were a legitimate league. Their games were even broadcast on ESPN, and then they had a a deal with the Black Entertainment Network um, at different points in the league's history. And provided a lot of entertainment and a lot of, you know, just uh, something to do for those small cities where the CBA usually put its teams. You know, they usually didn't try and put them in really big areas. They tried to put them in, in smaller places where there wasn't a whole lot else to do. So the, the local fans really did love their team. The league is part of the history, part of the fabric of basketball. And besides the NBA, was the longest-running professional basketball league in the United States. There is no longer a place for the Continental Basketball Association, 
But for a number of basketball people, you know, the coaches, the players, everybody, it's missed. All right, well, it looks like that is it for this episode. We uh, hope you enjoyed it and feel a little bit more enlightened. Maybe you uh, feel inclined to go back and look up some of those CBA players and, you know, who they turned out to be. Maybe there's someone that uh, you grew up watching who came from the CBA you didn't even know. Well, until next time, everyone, uh, stay safe and remember that Jesus loves you. Thanks for listening. Check out more content from the Saints Sports Network at saintsportsnetwork.home.blog.